Book of Acts chapter 9 this morning. We're continuing our series called Miracle, the Power of God's Salvation. The Miracle, the Power of God's Salvation. Acts chapter 9. Let's pray now and ask for God's blessing upon our time together. Well, Father, we gather this morning eager to hear from you, Lord. We are not eager to you know, just come together for, for no reason, but we gather, Lord, because of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we thank you for your word, Father. We thank you that you do not call us to live in this world apart from any direction, any counsel, but rather, Lord, you speak to us. And we ask you, Lord, now that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word, that you would give us ears to hear your voice speaking to us. Help us to apply your word to our lives, Father. Please give us fresh help and hope for all that you call us to do. We pray for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, please follow along. I'm going to read from the book of Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. This is God's holy and authoritative word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is God's word. May he bless the preaching of it. Well, raised and educated in a liberal Catholic setting... Rosaria Champagne was a self-described lesbian feminist and a tenured professor of women's studies at Syracuse University. Her primary academic field was critical theory, specializing in queer theory. 
She was a student of Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, and Charles Darwin. She was an advisor for the LGBTQ student group, wrote Syracuse University's policy for same-sex couples, and actively lobbied for LGBTQ aims alongside her lesbian partner. Rosaria was an activist who is giving her life to refuting the biblical teaching on sexuality and gender, and she was a very effective apologist for her views. However, in 1997, while Rosaria was researching the religious right and what she described as their politics of hatred against people like me, she wrote an article against the Promise Keepers, which led a pastor named Ken Smith to reach out to her. Ken and his wife began inviting Rosaria over to their home for dinner. They wanted to hear her out and listen to her patiently, share her views, and then they graciously shared the contrasting worldview of the Bible. They welcomed her into their lives. They did not reject her, but nor did they adopt or affirm her worldview. Rather, with great love, they systematically explained to her the teaching of the Bible, and after two years of meals and conversations, being overwhelmed by their Christian hospitality and their unrelenting conviction and faith in Jesus, Rosaria found that her heart had been completely transformed. And she surrendered her life to the Lord by repenting of her sin, leaving her lifestyle, which cost her dearly. It cost her her romantic partner. It cost her countless friends. And she has since become a zealous and outspoken evangelist for the Christian faith, which she remains today. Well, Acts chapter 9 demonstrates the transforming power of God for even the most unlikely of converts. Rosaria Champagne, now called Butterfield, uh, calls herself one of the most unlikely of converts. And in Acts chapter 9, we read about another unlikely convert, Saul the persecutor. What we see is that the power of God's salvation is an astonishing miracle in every respect. We heard about two testimonies this morning of God's miraculous salvation at work in lives today. But here we read about Saul's conversion, which may well be one of the most important conversions in all of church history. We all owe much of our faith to this moment. What we read about in this text impacts us today. It's so important, in fact, that the author of the book of Acts recounts this same story three separate times, here in chapter 9, again in chapters 22 and in 26, adding a little bit of detail each time. Saul's conversion illustrates the power of God over the most unlikely of converts. It demonstrates the unstoppable power of the gospel. It shows us that no one is out of the reach of our good shepherd. This passage this morning is an invitation to you and to me to see and believe in the transforming power of the gospel of our sovereign God. That's what we're called to do. So we're going to walk through this passage this morning in, in three sections. First, the conversion of Saul. Who do you think in your life, as you think about people that you know in your family and at work and in your neighborhood, who is the most unlikely person to be converted that you know? Saul was that man for the early Christians in and around Jerusalem. But unlike the criminal who hung on the cross next to Jesus and repented in his dying breath, Saul was not a criminal. Saul was blameless according to the law. He was a well-respected, morally upright. He was a good citizen. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a religious leader of the day. 
Make no mistake, Saul was an ardent student of the Jewish tradition. He was meticulous in his obedience to the Torah. He was zealous in his desire to guard the people of God from this new sect of Christians. But Saul's self-righteousness fueled his persecution of the church and made him an enemy of Christ. Though he had already, you know, Saul had already given his approval over the death of Stephen, he was not satisfied. He didn't think that it had taken enough effect. And so, uh, so he wasn't satisfied with the progress there. It says he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was still on the hunt. He was a church hunter. He was looking for Christians. He was hunting them out, going house to house, looking for men and women of the way, they called it, to put them in jail and to persecute them. He saw it as his divine mandate. He saw himself doing the work of God. You see, he knew that if the mission of the church was successful, it would upend everything that he knew and to be true in his life. Everything that he had learned, everything about his religious views would be upended and turned upside down. And therefore, his desire was to eradicate Christians from the face of the earth. And it was one task that he expected God's reward. So when he hears the voice of the Lord on the road to Damascus, as we read here, as he anticipates hearing God's reward, what does he hear this divine voice say to him? Is it commendation? Is it well done? Look at verse 4. He hears this surprising question. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this was a surprising question because Saul is not aware of some divine being that he's persecuting. He is persecuting the church. But what we see here is, is God identifying himself with his people. An attack on God's people is an attack on God himself. Verse 5, Saul responds, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. I am Jesus. He hears a voice claiming to be Jesus. That man who had who had led all of, these, all of these people in this new sect, this man who had been beaten and tried, found guilty, and crucified, and he is speaking to him here. This man who had died and who was buried, who in his understanding, his followers had stolen his body, his dead body from the tomb. This is who's speaking to him right now. Imagine what Saul is experiencing in this moment. A voice come from the dead. And it says later that, we, that he saw him face to face. Can it be that Jesus is alive? If Jesus is alive, Saul knows, it changes everything. He came to face with a risen Christ. He had an encounter with God himself. Biblical commentator Eckhart Schnabel says the typical aspect of Saul's encounter is the fact that conversion is never simply the regret for past misdeeds or the learning of truths about God or the emotional experience of God's, of God's Spirit working in our hearts. Conversion involves the conscious acceptance of the claims concerning the life and identity of Christ Jesus as crucified, risen, and exalted Lord who is Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. It is in this comprehensive sense that authentic conversion always involves an encounter with Jesus. Just a few chapters before in Acts chapter 5, Saul's teacher, Gamaliel, 
His teacher and mentor, a man held in high esteem, had warned against opposing the church in the case that if they are in fact from God, they would be unable to stop it. And they would be found opposing God himself. And that is exactly what Saul is now informed. What Saul now realizes he has been doing all along is opposing God. He has been an enemy of Christ. He was not simply stomping out some spurious group of fanatics. He was opposing Almighty God. To to call this a sobering moment for Saul is an understatement. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And it changes everything for him. His life is transformed. You see, Saul had, not, had wanted nothing to do with Jesus up until this point, but the God of all mercy chose Saul. He chose him before the foundation of the world to be his own, and this hunter always gets his prey. C.S. Lewis saw this in his own conversion. He said, I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. He says, the prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that Lord which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. The words compel and try compel them to come in have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. The risen Christ blinded Saul and knocked him off his horse in order to awaken him to the glory of Christ. You see, God uses all manner of circumstances throughout Scripture and in our lives today, situations and people to bring us to an end of ourselves until we finally embrace and celebrate that we are the objects of His mercy and saving grace. You see, Saul thought that he could know and honor God through a life of respectfulness and disciplined life. But what he learned, however, was that he was simply a sinner in need of a Savior. Despite all of his best efforts, imagine how offensive this is to Saul, who, had, who, who was so scrupulous in his law-keeping to be told that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, you must bow the knee to me. This is the offense of the gospel that Jesus spoke about. People of the day did not like to hear this. It was offensive, and we don't like to think of it. Uh, we, don't, we don't like it anymore today. We don't like to think of ourselves as sinners in need of our mercy. We think, well, I'm not that bad. Sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty decent guy. But what we see here is that no amount of law-keeping or misplaced spiritual zeal, however sincere... None of that is enough to get us into heaven or to warrant God's acceptance. Rather, we need to turn to God in repentance and faith and receive from him the gift of grace that he offers in Jesus Christ that he offered to Saul here. That's what Saul did, and it made all the difference in the world. You see, the conversion of Saul is intended to produce in you and in me the rock-solid confidence that no one is out of the reach of Christ. No one is too far gone to receive 
his mercy. He knows everything about you. He knew all about Saul, all the, all the, you know, all the people that he had persecuted and murdered. And he pursued him with mercy. There is no one today who is too far gone for the Lord God Almighty to completely rescue and completely redeem. Even the most unlikely of converts can be saved. So that's the conversion of Saul. Next is the courage of Ananias. It's for good reason that, uh, that William Barclay calls Ananias one of the forgotten heroes of the church. The Lord uses Ananias to bring the apostle Paul to faith in Christ. And then you think about all that Paul did as a result of this, and it was all doing, in fact, to Ananias' obedience, his courageous step of faith in responding to what the Lord called him to do. When Jesus issued this call, however, to Ananias, he wasn't sure that he was up for the task. Have you ever been called to something that was intimidating, called to something that required courage? I remember a few years ago, I was called to a moment of courage. I was on vacation with my family uh, down on the Gulf Coast, and I took one of my sons, 10 years old at the time, so you can guess who this was, to the swimming pool. And we walked up to the gate, and as I opened the gate, we're just kind of casually walking in, nobody's there. I opened the gate, and there's an alligator on the sidewalk. An alligator on the side, a small dinosaur. <laughs> and I look at this thing, and it startles me. But then, to my great relief, it wasn't moving. It was not a real alligator. Someone had put that there as a prank. So I grab my son. We take a step in. The alligator moves. It wasn't a prank. This was no stuffed alligator. I look around like, what in the world do I do? Nobody is here. There's no security. There's no animal control. Uh, so what do I do? I, I walk over. I grab it by the tail. I pick it up, and I just launch it right over the fence. No, I didn't. It's not what I did. I wish I did that. Rather, I called my, so we're, we're at my in-law's place, and so I called my mother-in-law. I said, hey, who do you call to get rid? There's an alligator down here. Who do you call? What do you do to deal with this? And she said, well, just, just pick it up and carry it away. I said, it's an alligator. <laughs> in case I wasn't clear on that. Um, I get off the phone. I call my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law lives in New Orleans. And he, he plays with alligators, you know, as like toy things. And so I call him, hey, man, what do I do? And he just laughs. He says, you just pick it up and you just carry it away. Um, I sent him a picture of it just to illustrate it, it's a real alligator, in case you didn't, not clear. He laughs at me. He says, that's a baby alligator. Just pick it up. Well, my, at this point, my mother-in-law shows up. Okay, grandma's here, and my kids come with her. She does not hesitate. She walks over to this alligator, she grabs a towel, throws it on its head, picks it up, and then she just walks off, and then she throws it into the ocean, which was about 100 yards away. <laughs> Grandma was the hero where dad failed. And my kids have not let me forget it to this day. Ananias was called to this terrifying task. He was called to courage. And at first he hesitates. But unlike me, he follows through. He says, are you sure, Lord? This guy is dangerous. He hates your church. He is preying upon your people. He is hunting us down and killing us. Ananias' hesitation is understandable. Consider the fact that Ananias likely had personal friends who had been persecuted, jailed, perhaps even killed by Saul. 
This man, Saul, represented hostility to the extreme. He was not simply mocking Christians. He was not canceling them online. He was not threatening their jobs. No, Saul made it his mission to hunt down and to eliminate the church of Christ and to wipe it off the face of the earth. You, in this situation, were you to hear him saying, I think I'm going to go preach to that guy, you might say, that's unwise. He will kill you. He will jail you. It is understandable. To preach to the church hunter himself would be like a missionary in a closed country turning himself into the authorities so that he might talk about Jesus. It would be suicide. But Jesus tells Ananias, verse 11, rise and go. Go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for this man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Jesus tells him to go. Tell him how much he will suffer for my name. Now, it's one thing to say, go and tell him the gospel, go and share him some good news, but tell him he's going to suffer. I mean, imagine that for a gospel presentation. It's not very persuasive. It's not, hey, come to Jesus and your life, everything will get better. No, come to Jesus, you will suffer on his behalf. Hey, man, I know you hate me and my people, but my God said, you're going to become one of us. You're going to preach the message you have been persecuting, and you are going to struggle the rest of your life as a result. You in? Not very persuasive, not very winsome. Ananias' courage in this act, though, is remarkable. He hears the call of his Lord, and he responds in faith. Now, we don't know much about this man, Ananias. This exchange is all that we know about him in Scripture. He appears for Saul's conversion, and then he vanishes, never to be heard from again. He goes to Saul, aware that he might well be going to his death. But the word of the Lord was his strength. And so he went with courage, with boldness, with love. F.F. Bruce says that Ananias enters and leaves the narrative, and we know nothing more of him. But as Saul's first friend after his conversion, the first follower of Jesus, to greet him as a brother as well as the one who faithfully bore the Lord's commission to him, Ananias has an honored place in sacred history, and a special claim on the gratitude of all who in one way or another have entered into the blessing that stems from the life and work of the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, Paul was unique in his ministry in the church, but this illustrates that you never know the impact of what your simple steps of obedience, your simple steps of faith might bear in one individual's life, and then the and then the ramifications of that in others' lives. You never know what the Lord will do with that. Verse 17, when Ananias arrives, look at this, it says that he lays his hands on Saul. He addresses him as brother. He is gentle. He shows him mercy. Think about who he is laying his hands on. Saul did not deserve mercy. Saul did not justify affection, and yet that's exactly what Ananias shows him. He was gentle with him. He gave him the message that he was entrusted with, and he prays for him. Ananias' name actually means God is gracious, and he lives up to his name here. Imagine this. Imagine the first words that Saul hears from a Christian 
following his conversion are words not of, of anger, not of how, how dare you, how could you do that? But rather what he hears are words of affectionate welcome. This is incredible. It's remarkable to think about this. The enemy of God's people is welcomed as a brother. The church hunter himself is embraced as family. Saul had a direct encounter with the Lord Jesus himself, saw him face to face, but it wasn't until Ananias came to him with this message that he responds in faith. You think about that. How many people say, well, if, if I could just see Jesus face to face. You see, for Saul, that wasn't enough. It took Ananias going to him for Saul to respond in faith. Again, Eckhart Schnabel says the process of Saul's conversion was only complete when Ananias conveyed to him the healing, the blessing, and the commission of Jesus. While some people in, for example, communist countries have been converted to faith in Jesus as the result of radio broadcasts without contact with other Christians, this is not the norm. Conversions are connected with the personal involvement of believers. Even supernatural phenomena surrounding missionary situations do not absolve Christians from the necessity of personal witnessing. Jesus certainly could have continued to speak to Saul directly, particularly when Ananias initially objected to getting involved. But he insisted that Ananias visit Saul. Like Ananias, like Saul, we are called to the work of personally witnessing to the glory of Jesus to those around us. While God can use any means that He wants, any means that He desires, He is sovereign over all creation. He can do anything He wants. He chooses to use people like Ananias and like you and me to draw those that He is calling to Himself. He does not save us and then simply tell us to carry on with our lives as if nothing changed. Rather, He commissions us as fishers of men. He saves us and He commissions us, which leads to our final point, the commission of Christ. When the Lord opened Saul's eyes to see his glory, it changed everything. His entire life is transformed. Saul had dedicated his life to the eradication of the people of the way. And now Ananias tells him that Christ has a new mission for his life. Ananias isn't simply doing this on his own, but he functions as a mouthpiece of the Lord for Saul. F.F. Bruce says that Ananias uttered the words, but as he did so, it was Christ himself who commissioned Saul to be his ambassador. Ananias laid his hands on Saul, but it was the power of Christ that in the same moment enlightened his eyes and filled him with the Holy Spirit. Christ commissions him to go and to bear witness about himself. He tells him to go and proclaim the message that he had until now been persecuting. He tells them to bear witness to the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Later on in the book of Acts, in chapter 22, Luke gives a fuller account of what he tells Saul. In verse 14, he says, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. We see him respond. We, we see him obey this word 
immediately he is baptized. In the next section of chapter 9, he goes on to begin his ministry, making Jesus known with the rest of his life, with all of his being, giving everything he can to telling everyone about the Savior of the world. It's glorious. And such is the commission that we have all received. A couple of weeks ago, I read this story from a man named Garrett Kell. Uh, he's a pastor that I respect. And he talks about what he did upon his conversion. He says upon his conversion, he began to share his new faith with everyone he knew. He says, after I got saved, I tried sharing the gospel with everyone. Our cocaine dealer was a guy named Brian, who we affectionately called the white devil. We had done a lot of evil together, and so I knew I had to talk to him about Jesus. So one night after reading my Bible, I printed off all the verses I could find on hell. I grabbed a hammer and drove to his house at 3 a.m. I proceeded to nail the verses one by one to his front door. I had never heard of Martin Luther, but I guess we had similar zeal. When I got back home, my roommate's phone was ringing. I could hear her trying to calm down the person on the other line. She said, somebody did what? To your what? Then she said, I bet it's Garrett. He's been reading the Bible and losing his mind. She wasn't entirely wrong. God had graciously been helping me see things from an eternal perspective. All my friends were running toward hell. And I had to warn them even with questionable methods. Have you ever used questionable methods like that? Maybe, maybe not nailing something, but we all have stories, I'm sure. But Garrett arrives at this conclusion. He says, we may mature in how we steward zeal for the lost, but maturing in Christ never looks like losing zeal. I think that's right. Maturing in Christ does not look like losing zeal altogether. So how is your zeal this morning? We are all commissioned, like Ananias, like Paul, not necessarily to apostolic ministry, but we are called as witnesses. We are called as fishers of men. We are called as ambassadors of Christ. So are, are you convinced that the Great Commission applies to you? Are you are you aware that Jesus invites you to participate in his great rescue mission? Do you believe that God can use anyone he wants and save anyone he wants, but that he chooses to use people like you and me? Do you believe in the transforming power of our sovereign God? Or have you allowed the cares of this world or the comforts of this world or something else to displace your zeal for sharing the gospel with the lost? Let me, I want to close with two points of application. Okay, two points that I want to leave you with, I want to encourage you with as we go out today. First of all, never lose your sense of wonder that God saved you. Never lose that wonder. That's one of our goals for this, for this sermon series is to cultivate fresh awe and wonder at God's saving grace in your life. Never grow unaffected or familiar with your conversion that you lose that sense of amazement. Think about this every day. Meditate on it. Don't lose that wonder. Let it increase and never decrease. Consider just what happened when you experienced the miracle of regeneration. Do you remember that moment? Do you remember when you came to that realization that, that God knows everything about you and that he chose you? That he had mercy upon you? 
We want to continually cultivate a sense of awe and wonder that he did that. And if you don't remember that, let me encourage you to reread this passage. You see, Paul's conversion is a prototype of all of our conversions. Not all of us were blinded. Not all of us were knocked off our horses. But every one of us have received the sovereign grace of God in our lives, opening our eyes to see his glory if we belong to him. And if you are not amazed by this grace, then my friend, I want to suggest that you have not come to understand the depth of his grace towards you because it is amazing. It is incredible. It is miraculous. Every one of our stories map on to Saul's, not necessarily to degree, but absolutely in kind. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, walked as enemies of Christ. Whether God saved you at 60 years old or at 6 years old, you are a recipient of the love and mercy of our good and holy Savior. So be amazed. Be amazed by grace. And be filled with joy and confidence at the rich and glorious inheritance that you have been given in Christ. Toward the end of his life, John Newton, former slave trader, said, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. Later in Saul's life, he wrote these words, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world why? To save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. May we say these same words with the same depth of meaning as John Newton or the Apostle Paul. So first off, never lose your sense of wonder that God saved you. Secondly, believe in the transforming power of our sovereign God. God can save the most unlikely of converts. Believe that no one is safe from the hound of heaven. No one is out of his reach. God can save anyone. Saul was the most unlikely of converts to the early church. Yet, as Isaiah said, the Lord's arm is not too short to save. Even the most unlikely person to be converted. All it took was one blast of glory and self-righteous Saul falls on his face. Friends, if God's arm is not too short to save a persecutor of the church like Saul, then is his arm too short to save that family member that comes to mind? Or that neighbor who mocks you, or that coworker who always gives you a hard time about your faith? Peter Jeffrey says it may be there are people of your acquaintance like Saul, and you can see no hope of them ever becoming a Christian. Take heart from the power of sovereign, of saving grace. If God can transform the persecutor into a preacher or use Ananias the unknown to preach to Saul the church hunter, God can use you to reach your neighbor. God can use you to display the beauty of the gospel in your workplace. That's his desire. If he can use a ragtag group of uneducated fishermen and unrespected tax collectors, he can use you and me as well. He does his best work with modest means. 
It's how his glory is best seen. You see, if God used the impressive things of the world, the famous, the wealthy, the persuasive, then they get all the glory for that. Well, of course there are people being converted because that person is very impressive. But God chooses, chooses instead what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chooses the weak, the jars of clay to proclaim hope to kings. Listen, when, when Ananias was told to go to Saul, Jesus was already at work there. He had already revealed himself to Saul. He was already working in his heart. But he called Ananias to join him in this. He called him to a step of faith. Jesus chose to use Ananias to reap where Ananias had not sown. Ananias was not the active agent in in Saul's salvation. God is. God saved Saul, but he did it through the witness of Ananias. What a privilege to participate in God's work in the lives of others. So let me ask you this. Who would you be astonished to see converted to Christ? Who is it that were I to tell you today, hey, so-and-so is here. So-and-so said that they're a Christian. So-and-so is being baptized. You'd say, no. No way. What, what happened? Who would you be astonished to see come to faith? That neighbor that you avoid or that coworker who makes life so difficult for you, that family member who rolls their eyes every time you talk about Jesus. Who in your life is the least likely person to be converted the way you see it? Who is it that you think it would take a miracle for them to become a believer? Listen closely, friends. Make no mistake. God is able to save to the utmost the most hardened of sinners. Let the conversion of Saul fill you with faith and great hope that God can save anyone. There is no sinner out of the reach of our Lord. His mighty arm is not shortened. Saul's conversion demands that we must never consider anyone's case hopeless. We must never write anyone off. He doesn't. No one is hopeless. No one is safe. The hound of heaven will have his prey. Therefore, dear dear Christian, have courage. Don't shrink back. Boldly proclaim with gentleness, with graciousness, with love, but with confidence. You see, the power is not in the quality of your presentation, but in the content of your proclamation. God delights to use the weak and the introverted. He loves to use ordinary people like you and I to do extraordinary things that only can be explained by the sovereign work of our almighty God. This passage is not intended to make us think, wow, isn't it cool that God used to do such miraculous things? Now, this passage is intended to fuel your faith that the same God who used the most reluctant of evangelists, like Ananias, can save the most unlikely of converts. And he is still at work today using ordinary people like you and me. So church, I want to encourage you to leave here today filled with awe. Leave here today filled with wonder at your own salvation. That no one is too far gone for the Lord to save. Leave here today filled with joyful confidence as you proclaim the hope of the gospel to those that God has sovereignly placed all around you. He's placed you right in the middle of a bunch of people who don't know him and that need him more than anything else in the world. Have faith that God will use you. Believe in the transforming power of our sovereign God. Let's pray.
Well, Father, as we read this story, we again thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you are a God who works miracles. And I pray this morning, Father, that you would bear, that you would bring your word to bear true in our hearts. That it would go from curiosity to conviction. Lord, that, that you would open our eyes like Saul, Father, for those who don't know you, Father, in the room today, I pray that you would open blind eyes to see your glory, that you would grant faith where there was none. Father, I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would stir afresh that sense of awe and wonder at the saving grace that we have received from you. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with courage and conviction and confidence that our sovereign God is able to save anyone in the world and that you delight to use people like us. Please send us out today, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.